This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. Over the past year, you might have heard the phrase name, image, and likeness quite a bit in the news. That's because the NCAA, which of course is the governing body for collegiate sports in the U.S., changed their rules around athletes being compensated and earning money on their name, image, and likeness. You have to understand, this has been a painful sticking point for a lot of athletes who had to choose between making some much-needed money on the side or playing their sport. Case in point, former University of Central Florida football player Donald De La Haye made headlines a few years ago when he posted a video about losing his scholarship because he was earning revenue from his YouTube content. It was just very unfair in my opinion. And now I got to deal with the consequences. And consequences are no more college football. Since I can't play college football, no more scholarship. I'm ineligible. I can't pay for school. <sighs> Damn. Throughout the NCAA's 115-year history, the organization has said college athletes should not be compensated because getting paid would make them professionals and not amateurs. Now, that might have been fine back in the 1900s, but college sports have become a massive business. The NCAA earned just over $1.1 billion last year, and in 2019, college athletic programs took in nearly $19 billion in total revenue. All this money goes to coaches' salaries, TV networks, lavish training facilities and stadiums, so who could blame athletes for wanting a slice of the action? Or even to just make money from their own social media like Donald. So after all this time, what finally forced the NCAA to change its mind? And how are athletes navigating this new era? This is Creative Control. I'm your host, Casey Finey, and each week I'll be unpacking the driving forces and people shaping the creator economy and what it all means for its future. It's wild to think that YouTube launched in 2005, which was just a year after I started college. Because when I think back to what the platform was and the kind of content everyone was posting, myself included, it was more than clear that this was all just for fun. I mean, the idea of monetizing your videos or social media posts just didn't exist back then. Also, what doesn't exist are my former YouTube videos, so please don't bother looking for them. But for college students now, being a content creator is a very real side hustle that could mean earning some very real and much-needed income. That is, unless you are a student athlete. Up until very recently, college athletes couldn't earn any revenue from their name, image, and likeness, which had devastating effects for some, like Donald De La Haye, who we heard from at the beginning of the episode. He just couldn't understand why earning revenue from his own social media presence would be a problem. <sighs> it's just so crazy to me, man. It's really so crazy to me, man. Like, I really did nothing wrong, like I told y'all. I was just motivating kids, helping them out. A lot of people would watch my videos, say I inspire them say they loved what I do, say I brought smiles to them, bright their day. I was just having innocent fun. But you know, the NCAA monsters, man. If it don't benefit them, then they don't want it. And Donald hasn't been alone in his frustration. I mean, think about it. For most college athletes, playing their sport is their full-time job. If you're lucky enough to get a scholarship, sometimes that can only go so far. 
In a 2014 interview about college athletes trying to unionize, former UConn basketball player Shabazz Napier laid it out pretty clear when a reporter asked him if he feels like an employee. I just feel like a, a student athlete. And, uh, you know, sometimes, like I said, there's hungry nights where I don't, I'm not able to eat and I still got to play up to my capabilities. And sometimes it's that way. I don't see myself as so much of an employee, but when you see a uh, jersey getting sold, it may not have the last name on it, but when you see a jersey getting sold, things like that, you know, to some, some credit, you feel like you want something in return. So how did we get to the point where student athletes could earn money from their name, image, and likeness? First of all, you have to understand that the NCAA didn't just up and change its mind out of the goodness of its heart. This issue has been playing out in courts for years. Back in 2009, former UCLA basketball player Ed O'Bannon sued the NCAA, claiming that his name, image, and likeness were being used in a video game without his permission and without compensation. O'Bannon eventually won the lawsuit, with the judge basically ruling that the NCAA's view of amateurism, that is to say students playing sports for free, was subject to antitrust laws just like any other commercial business. So the NCAA did a masterful job for over 50 years of selling this myth that there was some nobility, purity in amateurism in college sports. And many people, many decision makers believe that myth. Uh, and, you know, it has lasted a long time. That's Jeffrey Kessler. He's a partner and co-executive chair of the law firm Winston & Strawn, and his career as a sports litigator spans well over 40 years. Jeffrey has represented players in the NFL, the NBA, the U.S. national women's soccer team. I mean, if you're an athlete with a bone to pick, he's your guy. So the NCAA was originally formed at the request of President Theodore Roosevelt to try to improve safety in football because uh, people were actually dying on the football field. And it was supposed to be an organization devoted to improving the safety of the sport and issues like that. Somehow, in its checkered history, it ended up primarily uh, as an economic cartel of competing schools to regulate the compensation to athletes in gigantic sports businesses. O'Bannon's victory in 2014 led to a series of other lawsuits against the NCAA, which then led to a Senate hearing in 2020 examining this very issue. Connecticut Senator Chris Murphy has been one of the many vocal supporters of athletes being able to make money from their name, image, and likeness. In the hearing, Senator Murphy argued the disparity of schools and coaches making bank off of these athletes and the athletes themselves getting nothing. It's the only multi-billion dollar industry in this country where we allow for the employers to collude in order to fix the wages of the majority of their employees. That's what's going on here. We can say that the workers, the athletes should be happy with the cost of tuition, but that's not how the free market works. Uh, and it, to me, it's just pretty rich to listen to a coach who's making $5 million a year tell his athletes that they should be okay with simply the cost of tuition. This issue actually rose all the way to the Supreme Court last year where Jeffrey Kessler led the plaintiff's team. 
In the NCAA versus Alston, the Supreme Court unanimously struck down the NCAA's restrictions on schools giving cash to athletes for academic expenses like laptops or tutoring. But the even bigger impact of the Supreme Court's ruling was that it effectively closed the NCAA's loophole of amateurism altogether. So, Jeffrey, break this down for me, right? What did the Supreme Court's ruling actually mean from a legal perspective? The legal principle was a rejection of the NCA's claim that amateurism is entitled to any special justification or defense treatment under the antitrust laws, and that they are subject to the rules of antitrust, just like every other business when they operate in these business markets, and that these are labor markets in which they're restricting compensation. So those legal principles immediately led the NCA to conclude that they had to suspend all their restrictions on names, images, and likenesses even though they had sustained them in part in the O'Bannon case. They lost the O'Bannon case, but much was allowed to remain because the risk after Alston of it all being struck down was so great that they couldn't continue to just run up a huge damages bill. Under the antitrust law, the damages are tripled. So the NCAA's rule change went into effect last July, So what would you say is the impact here? I mean, in your opinion, how big of a deal is this? In the history of college athletes and their rights and the future of how this is going to work, it was the biggest legal moment in history. There's no question about it. It is the transformative moment. It will affect every decision going forward and everything that happens. And it already has had these dramatic effects uh, this last year. And what this has done is this has created an explosion of free market activity. And we now see thousands of athletes getting deals for their NIL rights. And this is not just in the high revenue sports that I mentioned. Uh, You see female volleyball players getting big NIL deals. You see many non-revenue sports getting it because a lot of the value of these athletes can come from their ability to be social influencers, to be on social media, to develop their brand, which could be independent of this sport. And we're going to hear from one of those athletes cashing in on this new era after the break. This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. So we're all up to speed on how the NCAA changed its rules around athletes being compensated. So what does this new era for athletes look like? University of Michigan basketball player Adrian Nunez is one of the many athletes who have wasted no time in making up for lost time. Adrian, so glad I got a chance to talk to you, man. So you have a pretty big social media following. When did being a content creator come into focus for you? Was that always your plan? Yeah, so it's actually kind of funny. Like, I've never been someone who posts everything on social media. Like, prior to this, I had one of the smallest followings on the team itself. I didn't really like posting a lot. In the 2019-2020 season, 
uh, the team had got word that the NIL thing might actually be happening. We didn't know when. And I was like, man, I got to get my like Instagram followers up so I can at least make a little money. Adrian did start posting more and he got his Instagram up to a sizable 188,000 followers. Not bad, Adrian. But like so many other creators during the pandemic, he really blew up on TikTok when there was little else to do but post content. I couldn't really leave. All the gyms were closed. The school gym was closed. So I was basically left with like running outside and like doing a couple weighted exercise in my house and then making TikToks pretty much. I had a few videos that did pretty well. Everything I do, I try and be consistent with it. That's pretty much my biggest thing. And so once I saw a little bit of success, I was like, man, I'm just going to try and post as much as possible, at least once a day. At that time in quarantine, I was posting like two or three times a day. Yeah, I just saw a little success and it kind of just formed into what it is today. Adrian currently has more than three million followers on TikTok and helping him get the most out of his new career as a content creator is Barbara Jones. Barbara is the founder and CEO of talent agency Outshine Talent. And fun fact, she's the one who discovered Charlie D'Amelio, the most followed person on TikTok. For Barbara, she's approaching this new wave of college athlete creators like any other digital creator. Really, I just look at them as creators, um, as content creators and storytellers. They just happen to be coming from sort of a different place or community. So for me, it's really about looking at each of them as the potential for what kind of stories can they create and how does that relate to maybe brands that want to have those types of stories being told by this particular community. And there's been no shortage of brands looking to leverage Adrian's audience. There was a partnership with the streetwear brand Threadbeast. We did uh, a couple of Spotify videos. Deals with Hulu and Coca-Cola. We just did Pizza Hut out in LA. I would say... In my eyes, I feel like at least the point I'm trying to get to is like, it's not so much like how many we can do, which I feel like Barbara had said this to me when we first started working together. Like, it's not about quantity. You don't want your whole page to be an ad, which is like hard right now, because I mean, you're getting so many offers. It's hard to turn down a certain amount of money, you know, especially coming from like where I'm like coming from in terms of not making any money off of the whole TikTok and Instagram stuff. So I feel like that's where I'm at with that. So like, it's not even, oh, I've worked with this brand, this brand, and this brand. It's kind of like, I would rather secure one or two big deals. Even if Adrian is keeping his brand deals to a minimum, it's still a process he admits he couldn't handle on his own. I had zero knowledge. I just made an email. I put it in my bio and just whatever came in there, I kind of just responded to it. There were sometimes I'd be in class and I'd see a big email and be like, oh, and I'd be like negotiating the deal while I'm in class. It was pretty funny. And I'm like, did I just do that? But it was like, I was so excited for it. I'd never gotten these things before. And I didn't realize like the time, like I was like so ready to respond to these guys right away. And that right there underscores one of the problems here. If you talk to anybody about the rules regarding name, image, and likeness within the NCAA, the phrase Wild West comes up a lot. There's been no federal guidance here, so the rules vary state by state on what's allowed. Some schools have struck deals for their whole teams, some students are going at it solo, and in all that deal-making is a lack of expertise, which could lead to exploitation. Here's Barbara Jones again. I think that it's really important that there is, from this, maybe even from the school's perspective, but there is some education about the industry and about how things work 
because I think the knowledge part, the knowledge is power, you know, and there's a lot of mystery behind how this industry even works and what do you even charge and how, who do you even contact and all of that. And my biggest concern is, you know, having people be taken advantage of because there's always going to be, especially when there's Wild West and no rules. So my biggest thing is providing some basic resources. I think that each school, there's probably going to be part of their recruitment. There's going to be questions from new, you know, from new recruits on how can you help me with NIL deals and things like that. And so I think that most of these schools are going to really need to have some education themselves on how it works and um, tap into the current industry to maybe provide those resources. I feel like those resources will come eventually, right? There's already a lot of infrastructure in place for making and managing a living as a creator. That said, I think it's important to note that those resources should definitely extend to smaller, lesser known schools and athletes. It's clear to see the path toward big paychecks for star athletes on Division I teams, especially if we're talking about sports like basketball or football. And it's not a well-kept secret that star players at big programs have allegedly been getting under-the-table perks for decades. But if executed correctly, this could definitely create a revenue stream for athletes who don't have the luxury of leaning on a brand-name school. And apparently, it's already happening. Adrian Larmette is a senior manager at consulting firm Baker Tilly, where she specializes in risk advisory for higher education. So student-athletes getting paid is certainly something she's been keeping her eye on. And she's noticed that smaller schools are reaping the benefits, too. The data is pretty telling. I mean, we don't need to say that it applies to D2, D3 schools. The data and the fact that, that athletes across sports, across divisions, across the country are making money on this is pretty telling. And so what that means is they're either doing it with the support of their institution or they're, you know, doing it more of like grassroots. What I think it says to the institutions is you need to take this seriously. This is something that your athletes want to be involved in. It is potentially a way to help recruit. It's a potential way to help retain, but it's here. And and it's funny because I still talk with senior leaders on the institutional side. And from a risk perspective or an opportunity perspective, they say, oh, NIL, that's not us. We're a D3 school. That's not us. And I want to say, Have you talked to athletics and seen how many of your athletes are actually reporting deals, even if it's, you know, in kind, like they've they've contracted with a local restaurant or, you know, they've got a small dollar amount. I mean, we're seeing these things start to add up. Those athletes who have been scoring local deals remind me of micro-influencers in a way and how sometimes having a more niche reach can yield a bigger impact because there's a closer connection to the influencer and their audience. And in addition to athletes at smaller schools, another group that could really benefit from name, image, and likeness deals are female athletes. According to Barbara Jones at Outshine Talent, many influencer deals are in industries that typically lean more toward a female audience, like fashion, beauty, and lifestyle. Louisiana State University gymnast Olivia Dunn has already racked up more than $1 million in name, image, and likeness deals alone. I think that that's a nice, (laughs) it's a nice sort of tipping of the scales of how this can benefit female athletes. I think that it gives you extra strength and power that you can also capitalize on your femininity or any part of it. And I think that it all goes down to like understanding who you are as a personal brand and making sure that 
you're taking things that fit your personal brand. And so it really is, um, there's a lot of garbage out there that people can pick up and make money. Saying no is really powerful. Saying no to things that are wrong. And that's hard when you're starting out and you get this great offer, but you just don't believe in the brand or you don't think it's a fit for you. And I think that is something that all the athletes have to really consider. But the female athletes, they have to say a lot more no's, I think. Any way you look at it, college athletes are finally in a position to gain more financial equity. Not only can they earn income while they're in school, but there's more runway to set up their careers after they graduate. It's all what got Jeffrey Kessler so fired up in the first place to take on the NCAA in front of the Supreme Court. We've seen an explosion of this. And these payments, for many of these athletes, they're life-changing. Because if you come from a background of very limited economic means, and you can earn even another $10,000 by doing something like this each year, if you can have the ability to help out your family or to use this money to develop your brand and maybe have a business and a market for your brand that continues even after college, for some athletes, this lets them stay in school even and continue. You know, it used to be for the Olympic athletes that if they were successful in the Olympics, they wouldn't come back to school because they couldn't continue to do sponsorships or things like that and compete on their school athletics. Now they can. It actually has encouraged some of them to be able to continue to be entrepreneurs and do this. And what was the great injustice here is that the only people who couldn't do this were athletes. If you were an actor or a musician uh, or, or a, a social media influencer or a writer or anything else besides an athlete on these teams, you could develop your outside businesses and reputation and earn money, but only the athletes were prohibited from doing so. But not anymore. That's all for this episode of Creative Control. Make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And we want to hear from you. Are you a creator trying to navigate the creator economy? What questions do you have about who controls what? Send any questions or feedback to podcasts at fastcompany.com. That's podcast with an S at fastcompany.com. Creative Control is produced by Franz Bowen with production assistance from Blake Odom and sound design by Nicholas Torres.